Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Images of Christ. This series looks at the images of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and how they represent four aspects of Jesus Christ, the true human, king, servant, and God. So, Mark 10:45, we're going to be looking this morning at the symbol of the ox which stands for the true servant. Again, the, the verses that we're using, actually a couple of them are in your guide this week, and they'll all be up here on the screen. And as always, encourage you to bring your Bibles, whether paper or electronic, and follow along. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Hear the words of your king. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, as a ransom for many. Last week we looked at what is probably the easiest symbol to recognize what it stands for, the lion, the king. This week we're looking at the ox, um, and that's a little bit different because sometimes even in different cultures, oxes are called bulls, sometimes they're even referred to as buffalo. Um, What does it stand for? Well, one of the things is that they're actually very, very strong animals. I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen right now. There's a lion getting the short end of a fight with an ox or bull or buffalo. And you may have seen some of these before where there's actually one that's pretty famous where one had been surrounded by a whole pride of lions. And then the buffalo finally figured out, you know, if we actually come in here, we're stronger than they are. (laughs) And they, they tore the pride of lions up pretty bad. Uh, actually. So sometimes we don't think of it that way, but one thing about an ox is they are incredibly strong animals. But the flip side of that is they've been domesticated. So unlike many other strong animals that we could think of as uh, assigning strength to, these have been domesticated. We haven't domesticated a gorilla. We haven't domesticated really lions, but ox have been all over the place. And then they were also used for sacrifice. Unlike the other symbols that we're looking at, none of them are used for sacrifice, but ox were. So they're kind of all of these things. They're strong, um, yet they were domesticated to serve us, and they were also used in sacrifice. So when we come to this symbol of the ox, what is it that we're looking for? What does it represent? And what does it teach us about who Jesus is? So let's dive into our text. Now, as we begin looking at the ox, which I'm calling the true servant, this arises out of our text. Notice what Jesus says. He summarizes his mission here for us in Mark 10, 45. Speaking of himself, referring to himself as the Son of Man, he said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So notice here, Jesus tells us two things. Number one, even though I'm the king, I'm the son of God, and actually the term son of man was a royal term as well as one of servanthood, uh, he said, you might expect that I came to be served, but I did not. I actually came to serve. And then he defines a central component of that servanthood, which is to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying it's impossible to understand who I am. It's impossible to understand why I came and what I have done apart from knowing 
I am a servant, and that that servanthood centers on me laying my life down as a ransom, uh, uh, dying to pay for your sin. So Jesus here in this verse summarizes it, makes it nice and clear and easy for us. And this is related then to why, uh, one of the reasons why when God gave this vision to Ezekiel and to John, the ox was so appropriate. Because the ox was a great symbol of a servant. Now there are other symbols that can be used as well. The most common one in scripture is that of a lamb. If you think of a lamb as being a servant and, and a sacrificial animal, it was there. But of course, the, the difference is an ox is way stronger than a lamb. How many of you realize I could not get a picture of a lamb flipping a lion up in the air, right? They don't, they don't do that. In fact, lambs are pretty much helpless, but an ox is not. And so they were used uh, very often because they are actually the greatest of the domestic animals. That's one of the reasons scholars kind of wonder, you know, well, when God gave this vision and there were the four creatures, why were each of these chosen? Well, man's the greatest of God's creation. Lion is the king of the beast. Ox was the, the highest of the domesticated animals, and the eagle was the most powerful of the birds is kind of what they think. And if, if you look actually in the Ten Commandments, you can kind of see that, that they're not just surmising. That is the place the ox is given. When we're told in the Ten Commandments regarding coveting, the commandment that we shall not covet, the 10th commandment, we're told don't covet your neighbor's house, don't covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So notice here, you don't covet his house, which is everything that is associated with the neighbor. And then you, you go in order uh, more or less of value. The most valuable thing in your neighbor's house is, of course, his spouse. Then next down, you have manservant or maidservant. Then after that, it's domesticated animals. And the first one, the greatest one, is actually the ox. So it was the most valuable servant animal precisely because it is so strong. And it could accomplish things that no other animal could. And as a result, when you turn towards sacrifice, that's the first part Jesus said, I, I've come to serve. But when you turn towards the sacrificial part, Oxen are actually among the most valuable sacrifices because they're the most valuable animal because they are, in fact, so strong. So in the book of Numbers, the tribes of Israel are giving gifts to, to the Lord. Each tribe is going to give a gift. And we read in Numbers 7-3, you can reread the same thing like 12 times. They like to, uh, to repeat themselves. But they, they bring this and lay it out for the tribes in Numbers 7-3. They brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and 12 oxen, an ox from each leader, and a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. These are the leaders of the tribes. So they're coming in, and they're going to bring in six carts full of stuff, and there's two oxen pulling each cart, and these are gifts that are given to Yahweh. And so notice, you, of course, couldn't have a lesser animal like a lamb is not going to be able to pull the carts. But secondly, they're giving their best to Yahweh. This is the tribes are being counted, and they're, they're giving their gifts to Yahweh. And so because oxen are not nearly as numerous as lambs, they are very valuable sacrifices. Because they're so strong and are the best servant animal, they are the uh, most valuable sacrifice that can be given. And this is seen in the fact that you actually, when we think of the sacrificial offerings at the temple or the tabernacle, we normally think of lambs. 
When we think of the Passover, we think of lambs. But actually, both animals were used quite often, either a lamb or a bull, ox, uh, that, that sort of animal was used. In Deuteronomy 17 is one of the places where we can see this. We read Deuteronomy 17.1, Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It's re-summarizing it. And in the book of Leviticus, there were some offerings that you did with lambs, and there were some that you used bulls or uh, ox to actually do. For example, in Leviticus 16, you can read on the Day of Atonement, there was a ceremony where you remember there's actually two offerings given. One is a bull, and one is the scapegoat that is sent away. The bull is sacrificed to uh, remove the wrath of God, to pay for our sins, and then the scapegoat takes the sin out into the wilderness. So oxen were very often used, but not as often as lambs, because quite honestly, they were too valuable to be used all the time. But notice here, the same stipulations apply. When the Lord is re-giving the instructions regarding the sacrificial system, he says, here's what's central. Whatever you're giving, whether it's a lamb or whether it's an ox, it has to meet the same stipulation, which is it can't have a defect or flaw in it. It has to be perfect. On a practical level, this means if you have a calf born and it's missing something or all messed up, you can't say, well, that's the thing I'm going to take and give in sacrifice. The Lord says, no, you, you give me the best, not that which is broken and flawed. Um, they had to be uh, flawless when they are offered in payment for sin. And the reason for that, of course, is it's representing something regarding the nature of the coming of Jesus and what he's going to do. So what we see is Ox were symbols in the Old Testament that were used for servants. They're very strong. They're appropriate for that. But they're also used for sacrifice. Now let's fast forward and ask ourselves, why would this be an appropriate symbol for Jesus? Why would the Messiah coming need to be this symbol of a servant? Especially in light. I want to kind of, we're going to take a little bit of a turn here in our series. We saw that Jesus was the man where he was the second Adam, and he was fulfilling our obligations. And he was also the king, and one of the obligations we had was we were supposed to rule over creation. So we saw the man and the lion were closely linked in some ways. We're now going to kind of see the flip side of things. Because one might expect when you've heard that Jesus is coming as the second Adam, the king over creation, and is going to be acting as God's vice regent, then one might think that's going to be all about power and glory. But the very next symbol we turn to is not one of of glory, rather it's one of suffering and sacrifice. And that's why Jesus has to be the servant. Now I remind us, I'm going to put up uh, one of our catechism questions, and I don't do this because the catechism is scripture, but we, we tried to summarize the teaching of scripture. And one of the things that we said was, why does the Redeemer have to be truly human? And this is reminding us of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that he has to be human so that he might fulfill humanity's obligations to God by completely obeying God's law and suffering and dying for human disobedience. So remember, as the man, Jesus had to obey in our place, and he then has to suffer and die for our disobedience. We were supposed to be the servant of Yahweh. 
That's what we were called to be originally in the garden. But we rejected that, and we tried to establish our own rule apart from Yahweh, and therefore one had to come who was truly human, who was going to fulfill the call for us to be a servant. Not only the king over creation, but in relation to God, a servant. And so the, the man has to also be a lion and an ox, as it were, given our symbols. He has to be the king over creation, but he has to be a servant before God. And notice that he had to pay for our sin. He also has to not only fulfill the obligations of God, but then suffer and die for human disobedience. Because we failed, the servant now has to not only serve Yahweh, but has to serve us by taking our sin and paying the penalty for that sin so that we can be set free. So what this means is the servant is going to of necessity be the suffering servant. He's going to suffer to pay for our sin. So what this means is the true man has to also be the ox. The, the second Adam has to be the suffering servant. He has to suffer and die in our place. This also means that the king who is coming has to be the suffering servant in our place. This leads to another aspect. Notice in another catechism question we have, we ask, why must the Redeemer be perfectly righteous? Well, the reason that Jesus has to be perfectly righteous is so that his obedience and sacrifice in our place will be acceptable. If you remember what we just read in the law, what, what did God say regarding the nature of the lambs and the ox you brought down to sacrifice? Yeah, they got to be perfect. They can't have any flaws in them. So Jesus can't come and offer partial obedience. He can't be a servant one day and not a servant the next. He must be flawless in his obedience in our place. He had to be the perfect, flawless servant to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Now this is why this is such an important thing and we're taking a turn here. Because the nature of every other king is to be served. That's what kings do. You, you know, if, if we go to a state dinner at the White House, the president is not going to step up and start waiting on the table, right? I mean, I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, one of the things I had to do at one point, we had a lot, of, it was a, a base where there were a lot of very senior people. There were way more full bird colonels if you're in the military or the equivalent of a captain in the Navy than there were lieutenants. There were like three or four of them to one of me. And so I would have to set up these meetings where there would be 10 or 15 colonels in the room and all of these high-ranking civilians, the same thing. And you have to, according to which one was going to be there, where they sat next to the general. We actually had a book called the Blue Book that showed who got closer to the general. And one might think after 30 years in the military you don't care about that sort of thing, and one would be wrong. They very much did care exactly about that. It was all about place and position. So Jesus comes as the king. And we might expect it would be all about place and position, my rights, what you owe to me. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it is. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve because the lion is also the ox. The lion is the lamb. The lion, the king, is the servant. And we see this throughout the New Testament. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul 
brings this up, and he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's beginning in verse 5. He says, who being in very nature God. Now, we're actually going to come back to that symbol next week. We're going to see this, this paradox keeps building. So he says, Jesus is in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a what? Servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus is in very nature God. The essence of who he is is God. But he takes the nature of a servant specifically by becoming human. That's what we're talking about in the incarnation every year when it comes time around Christmas time. We're talking about the miracle that God has become man. Lion has become ox. Eagle has become the true man, the servant. That's, that's the paradox of these symbols because that's who Jesus is. In the incarnation, the king becomes the servant. And notice Paul goes on, so that's the first part of what Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Paul's going to pick up and carry on in this with the second part, that to give my life as a ransom for many. The very next verse in Philippians 2 says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. As the servant human, Jesus humbled himself and obeyed, and he obeyed even to the point of dying on the cross. There's a song I heard a few years ago. It was actually around Good Friday. It's called Lower Still, and, and I love the lyrics behind the song because it was talking about how there's this young girl, and she's writhing in pain, and, and God becomes man. Jesus is born, and you would think that's as humble as the king of the universe could get, but oh no, I must go lower still. And it goes through his life, and it comes to the time where he is struggling, and he is suffering, and he is beating. And Jesus says, but I must go lower still. And then he is placed on the cross, and he dies for a ransom for us because I had to go lower still. And that's what Paul is saying. He not only humbled himself in becoming a man, what other God would do that? Who but God would do that for us? But Paul says he didn't just do that. He humbled himself in his already humbled state. And he became obedient. He was a servant with every breath. And how far does that obedience go? All the way to the humiliating, crushing death on the cross, bearing our sin. In the incarnation, the king becomes the servant to die on the cross, to pay for our sin, to ransom you and me. Notice Paul's point is exactly what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Not only that, when John has his vision in Revelation, and he goes back and he sees the same thing, he sees the same four creatures that Ezekiel did in his vision, in Revelation chapter 5, John's in heaven, let me give a little bit of a background, there's these scrolls, and it's got, this, it's got these seals on them, and John is weeping because nobody is worthy to open the scrolls, no one. And he's told in Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. 
The lion is worthy. The lion will conquer all things. And in so doing, he's going to take that scroll from the hand of God and he's going to open it. You do not have to weep, John. But then here's the amazing thing. It says, then I saw. So John turns around and says, then I saw a what? A lamb. What's John expecting to see? The lion. Because the lion's the one that is triumphant. But what John turns around and sees is actually a lamb who, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne and encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he came and took the scroll. Do you see the paradox here? John hears the lion has triumphed. And we say amen, and that makes perfect sense. And then John turns around and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And the lamb is sitting on the throne, the sign of royal power, where we would expect the lion. And then the lamb goes and takes the scroll. Because the only way for you and I to be ransomed is the lion has to be the lamb. The lion has to be the ox, the true suffering servant to redeem us. He is the root of David. He is the true man. He is the lion, the conquering king. But he is also the suffering servant who was slain. And he sits on the throne, and he's the one that opens the scroll. And what I'm actually going to do, just right before I move to applying the word, this is what we're going to actually consider a little bit on Christmas Eve. I want you to think, what a mind-bending paradox. You and I can't be any one of the four symbols. I mean, we fail at all of them. Jesus not only can be one of them perfectly, he can be all of them perfectly, all at the same time. He can be the conquering lion and the suffering lamb at the same moment, completely fulfilling your call and mine. If that doesn't make you fall down on your knees and worship before him and say, no one is like our God, which, by the way, is exactly what keeps happening in Revelation. Every time everybody gets a glimpse of Jesus, they're all down worshiping again, and they're all saying power and honor and glory and praise to you because, wow, you are beyond all comprehension. That is the God who we serve. Now, for today, let's turn to applying the word. What does this mean to us when we consider this symbol? First off, do we see why Jesus had to be the servant? I'm again tying this back. Jesus had to be incarnated. We are not Gnostic. He had to be truly human. You and I, as human beings, owed to God the obedience of a servant, the heart of a servant. We owed this to God, and as the true man and the true ox, Jesus comes and he does that in our place. And he accomplishes this. He is the true servant I've never, ever been. And we've talked about this a little bit in these few weeks, but I'm, I'm wanting to anchor this into our mind. There is a reason why the incarnation happened. You can't simply skip Christmas and go to Easter. doesn't work that way. We, we, we like to skip things, and we can't. It doesn't make any sense. You can't have Jesus incarnated onto the cross. He has to be the servant of Yahweh through all of these years, through all of this time, through all of these trials, fulfilling your calls and mine. And I'm not going to dwell on today, but I want to remind you, that's good news for you and me. 
Because he has been the servant that you failed to be and that I failed to be, that servanthood, that righteousness is given to us in Jesus Christ. That is the great exchange. He's not only removed your sin, he has given you his righteousness. And if that will settle into your soul, it will transform and change your life. And I'm speaking that out of personal experience. There are few things that have transformed my understanding of my standing before God like understanding the active obedience of Jesus Christ that is imputed to me and is given to me so that I stand before God as if I had been the servant his heart had longed for from all eternity because Jesus is that in our place. Doctrine doesn't get any more practical than that. So I want to encourage you, when you stand there and you're crying out, God is not seeing you in your sin because Jesus has solved that for you and for me. Now, the second part is, that's why we need to see that Jesus is the suffering servant. See, a lot of people like the idea of the suffering servant. There, there are a lot of theologians like the first part of Mark 10, 45. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And then they want to put a period there and stop. But Jesus defined what that servanthood looked like. And there are people who don't like the idea of that servanthood, including death and bearing sin for us and paying ransom for us. We like him as a teacher and an example. This was a whole movement that started with a bunch of German theologians as a little Sideline, if you study church history and the guys have a German name in the last couple hundred years, you, you might want to walk carefully. You're probably in a landmine field, okay? They, they came up with, they decided they knew things about God better than anybody else did. And one of the things they said was they were on the quest for the real Jesus, as if we hadn't known who the real Jesus was for 1,800 years. And they were out to tell us who the real Jesus was because apparently they knew it better than the apostles actually did. And one of the things you can bet they always came up with was, well, the whole thing about Jesus suffering and dying to take wrath and take our sins away, eh, we don't really believe in all that. But see, that's bogus. And that goes directly against what Jesus himself said. He said, yes, I came to serve. Oh, you like that? Here's what servanthood looks like. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to bear the wrath of Almighty God. And that, friends, is offensive to many people. It simply is. We, we, we don't like a bloody religion. Well, we have one. Because there is no other payment for sins. And so, See, you and I had to obey God perfectly. Not pretty well, not close, kind of getting through the curve. Perfectly. We owed perfect obedience to God, not our best effort. See, whenever people want to remove that second part of Mark 10, 45, they reduce it down and say, well, God accepts your best. No, he doesn't. He accepts his best. That's what he demands. And so Jesus uh, comes knowing we owe perfect obedience to God, and the fact is we all fail at this miserably every day. And can I say, just as a sideline, telling me, look, all you really got to do is just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and God will accept that. Can I tell you that's very cold comfort? That's no help to me at all? Because I haven't ever loved Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength a single day of my life. Nor have you nor has anybody else 
except for Jesus. And so we owe perfect obedience to God. And our sin, do I see that my sin is worthy of judgment? See, this is why the ox is here. Our sin is worthy of judgment. God does not simply overlook sin. It must be, it will be judged. And so I'm either going to pay for my sin or someone else is going to pay for my sin. And thanks be to God, that's why we have the symbol of the ox. Because Jesus came and paid that penalty for you and for me. He's the true servant of God. He has suffered and died that we might have life. And I want to speak to everybody as I regularly do. I don't take this for granted. Do you understand that? Have you embraced that? Do you really know that the only way your sins can be forgiven is the blood of Christ? Because there is no hope of salvation apart from that. And we are on a huge move to try and get around that. I, I read an article the other day that there was a certain amount of furor coming out of the funeral for President Bush, 41, recently, and the furor came out of the, the recitation of the Apostles' Creed, and there were multiple reasons behind it, but one of the things was some people were like, we don't like this whole thing about Jesus dying and paying for our sins and talk about hell and all that. We didn't like all that. Well, I don't know what else to tell you. It's right there. They're drawing that out of the Scripture. That's why we have that there, and thanks be to God that Christians have been able to state this for millennia together to stand up and say this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints and you cannot remove Jesus dying and bearing the penalty for our sins if you do you've lost the gospel you've lost everything but there are lots of people today particularly in the West see this is why the church is struggling in the West we don't want to hear this and we think somehow we've got to accommodate the gospel to our culture. And the more we accommodate it, the weaker we become, the more irrelevant we become, the, and the more we shrink. And then you go to places like in Africa and South America and Southeast Asia where they're just saying we don't really care. What's relevant is the gospel's relevant to God. And it's relevant to our sin situation. And the more they preach it, the more they believe it, and the more they suffer for that message, the stronger the church becomes, the more it grows. This is the gospel, friends. The ox has paid the penalty for our sins. And I want to again encourage you, the good thing in that is when we understand that, it sets us free. I don't, I don't need to spend any energy earning the favor of God. I can give 100% of my energy to serving other people. I can give my energy to loving my neighbor because Jesus is already taking care of the thing between me and God. And that turns to the last point of applying the word. Do I see, am I following Jesus in serving others? See, that's exactly what Paul talked about and Jesus very often taught the disciples about this and that's the context of what he's talking about there in Mark 10 it's constantly Jesus would remind them of this because the disciples what, what was their most common argument we read about in the gospels who's the greatest which of us is going to be seated right there on the throne and Jesus is like you don't understand here's what lies between me and the throne is the cross 
That's what's there. Paul, the whole reason Philippians 2 is there is it lies at the heart of Jesus' work, and Paul is making a point to the Philippians. They're starting to argue and fight one another. He says, I want you to be like Jesus. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so your attitude, your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider called it God's something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant. He humbled himself. And Paul says, go and do the same. Now, this is critical for us because discipleship and consumerism are polar opposites. Now, let me tell you, everyone in this place, all day, every day, our culture is grooming and discipling you to be a consumer. And they are doing that with me. All of us. You have spent more hours of your life being groomed to be a consumer than any other thing. In this culture, that's the way it is. And what's the heart of consumerism? Give me what I want. I'm the center. Things should be for me you give to me what I want and need. But see, discipleship says, no, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And you go do the same thing. Remember, Jesus on the night he's betrayed gets down on the floor and washes their feet, something that servants wouldn't even do. And Jesus said, I'm setting an example for you. I want you to be the same way. Do I, do I understand that? Consumerism. And friend, if you don't think it, it runs deep, into your soul, you're kidding yourself. We are groomed. It should be your way. Everything is the way we want it to be. And that runs directly contrary to what it means to be a disciple. And it undermines serving other people. Secondly, another way to ask myself this question, am I living a life turned in on itself or am I actively serving others? Because servanthood's not meant to be just a once in a while thing. It's meant to be the way life is lived. My life is not my own. I was bought at a price. And therefore I honor God with my body and I put the needs of others before myself. I serve them before I serve myself. Now that runs directly contrary to our culture. But I remind you, as I've used the analogy before, why is the Dead Sea dead? All kinds of stuff coming in, what's going out? Nothing. If you sit here week after week, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to labor to teach you the Word of God, and if you take it in and take it in and take it in and take it in and nothing goes out in servanthood to others, what happens? You become a Dead Sea. What happens? It's always meant to be handled and passed on to others. So let me get real specific here before we go to the Lord's table. Can you think of one concrete way that you will serve someone else this week? One concrete way. Think for a moment. Might be your spouse, might be somebody else in the congregation might be a friend or coworker. It might be a stranger that you, you consistently run in to people on your way to work or whatever else. I want you to think for a moment. 
Can you think of one concrete way? Because the goal is not to leave here and to say, yes, gee, I should be a servant. I want to generally try and be a servant. It's to get real concrete. What one specific way can I serve someone else this week? Because we start with that to build a pattern. This is the way our life is meant to be. I've been very encouraged this year. I've spent a year reading C.S. Lewis all year long, and one of the most encouraging things to me is in reading biographies of him, and I just finished a, a book that was basically a bunch of essays written by people that had known him, is the consistent statement. I knew of C.S. Lewis, one of the brightest men who's ever lived, the brilliant Christian apologist, the great novelist, and all this sort of stuff. A number of people, not just one or two, a lot of people said he's the most thoroughly converted man I ever met in my life. He lived a life of servanthood to others. If Lewis knew you had a need, he would always strive to meet it. That's astounding to me. Because I kind of thought, uh, he's this brilliant guy, he's probably kind of off, isolated, he was not that way at all. Things big and small, you write a letter, you get a handwritten letter back. Looking for ways to serve people. That's an example. That, that, that is what ought to beat in our hearts. So can you think of a concrete way? And then I'm going to give you one other concrete way, which is if you have not, when you walk out today, stop at the Welcome Center and sign up for winter relief. Okay? Because this is an opportunity. This is the gospel uh, having an effect in our life, and we've been served, and so we serve other people. And it's not hard. It's not rocket science. It's just we lay our lives down. You see a need, you meet the need. So I want to urge you, if you've not signed up yet, sign up. It is a great opportunity to show the love of Christ to someone else. Now what we're going to do is we're going to be coming to the table. And for those of you who might have feared, I will not be leading communion this morning. Uh, you are welcome. And what we're going to do is actually I put out a plea yesterday and Bobby answered it. He's going to be leading us here at the communion table. He's going to come forward in just a moment and do this. And I want to remind us as we're doing this that this is the table of suffering. Because at this table, we're reminded that in his body, Jesus served. In his body, Jesus suffered. In his body, he was broken and he died for you and for me, for our sins and for our salvation. And it's also the table of life because through the sacrificial blood of Jesus, you and I are given life. That's the other paradox here. His death is life for us. Our sin goes to the righteous one. The, his righteousness comes to us. The whole thing is a paradox and an exchange. And at this table, we receive reassurance that he will never leave or forsake us. He is with us because Jesus has done this. So I want to encourage you as Bobby comes forward to lead us, come receive the life that is offered through the suffering servant of God. For I received from the Lord that what I passed on to you. And on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. When you eat, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. My blood is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. As often as you do this, drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for this opportunity that you give us to commune with you. The miracle that we can commune with the creator of the universe. Thank you as the suffering ox, Lord, as the, as the servant, that we have access to you. We pray that you would meet with us, Lord, and lead us into a life that's worthy of the Lord for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. When you get the elements, please hold on to them. And we'll take them together in just a few moments. Be in prayer and in reflection as they come. Father, you sent your son our Lord Jesus, the eternal King of heaven and earth. But Jesus, you came as the great servant of God, like the ox. You're strong and mighty, but you willingly came to serve us. Though you are God, you took the nature of a servant, becoming human and ministering to us. You took the yoke upon yourself and worked salvation for us being offered as the perfect sacrifice for sin. We take this bread to profess that you were broken, crushed, and punished for our sins. Apart from you, we have no life. So, by faith, we receive your body as nourishment for our souls. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you proclaim that you did not come to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Like the sacrificial animals of old, you were slain that your blood might pay for our sins. But your blood has done more than blood of any ox, Lord, any bull, any goat or lamb could ever do. For your blood has forever removed our sin. So today we profess that we are your people. You have ransomed us by your very blood. Through your sacrifice, we are justified. We're adopted. We're heirs of God. We take this cup in faith, acknowledging all we have is ours through the blood of Christ. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, by your great ministry, we have been lifted to heaven to behold our Lord Jesus and to feast upon the grace of God. Now we call upon you to sanctify us as those who have been served by Jesus. Empower us to serve others. Transform our hearts, minds, and attitudes so that they are like that of Jesus, the servant. Our, open our eyes to see opportunities to serve others. And as we do so, Open our hearts to believe the gospel. 
We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God who reigns now and forever. Amen. Thanks to Bobby for leading, and let's stand together for our word of benediction. I encourage you to receive the blessing of God, which has been procured for you by Jesus, and then go in that blessing. May our Lord Jesus, the oxen lamb who was slain to purchase people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. May he receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And may his presence and blessing fill your lives with every good thing. Go forth blessed to be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.